think uh, Pastor Kevin always tries to do, have a hymn sing that kind of goes along with what you're teaching on. And uh, tonight, we're not going to necessarily be looking strictly at Scripture. What I actually wanted to do was do something a little different, look at a, uh, a biography of an individual in church history. And the gentleman we're going to be looking at tonight, just an overview of his life and some of the changes he helped bring, really, to the, uh, to the Christian faith, especially in Europe. And this man's name is uh, Ulrich Zwingli. And is anyone in here familiar with Zwingli? Is uh, really have three people of the Reformation time period who really had a, a drastic effect on the Protestant Reformation. And there was people before Wycliffe and John Huss who were instrumental in really laying the foundations for the Reformation. But the two most well-known, obviously, are uh, John Calvin and, and Martin Luther. But there's another gentleman in there, Ulrich Zwingli, who was a contemporary of Luther and really died before Calvin could really get started. But the way he went about his ministry and his beliefs and the doctrinal things that he did, especially in Switzerland, had drastic underpinnings to the Reformation. And uh, because of a lot of the work that he did, we believe of what we believe, not because he taught it, but because he went back to the scriptures. So we will be looking uh, momentarily uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we get later on in Zwingli's life because that's a very important turning point, not only for Zwingli, but for the church in the Reformational time period. So again, let's just go through his life, be here in about 20, 25 minutes, and uh, just look at this individual, Ulrich Zwingli. And I wanted to pick some songs Oh, God, our help in ages past. That song always just reminds me of the, the sovereignty of God in ages past. How the God of Zwingli's time is the same God that still rules on the throne now. Divinely using people as instruments to bring about his will. And I think most of all with this song, Onward Christian Soldier, Zwingli, of all the reformers, was a model of that. The way he went about his life in Switzerland... He was a priest, he was a father, and he was also, interestingly enough, a soldier. And what's kind of striking is uh, stanza 3, or, or verse 3, an onward Christian soldier, we have this, one in hope, in doctrine, one in charity, and before that, we are not divided, all one body. And as we'll see, interestingly enough, as, as we get into the life of Zwingli, it didn't actually end up like that. Yes, we're supposed to be united in doctrine, but we're all fallen, and we all have different things and different disagreements with people, and um, nonetheless, he was still a soldier for Christ. So let's go ahead and uh, dive into it here, and if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to ask. I don't want this to, to be complete pontification on my behalf, but uh, let's just look at the life of this uh, remarkable man. <clears throat> so again, not many people are familiar with Zwingli, or at least the details of his life. Perhaps you've heard of his name, but he was born January 1st, 1486, and that was just three months after Martin Luther. So these two individuals especially, Luther and Zwingli, are going to be very important in the period of the Reformation. But he was born in a town called Wildhaus, which is in modern-day Switzerland. Now, most of Zwingli's life is centered in Switzerland. In fact, I don't think he went outside of Switzerland in his life other than for brief periods. So he was really based in northern Switzerland. 
And Switzerland's kind of an interesting country, or interesting paradox. And the southern part of it is greatly influenced by Italy. The western part of it's greatly influenced by France. And the northern part, where Zwingli's from, is greatly influenced by German. And uh, Zwingli spoke uh, a type of German, maybe with a, maybe like a southern accent as we have with English. So there was a little difference. But he mostly spoke German. And his life was very influenced by the Germanic culture. So he was born again January 1st, 1486. The early life of Zwingli was that of other young kids in his day, but he did have a very privileged upbringing. We hear that word oftentimes in our day as privilege, but in 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century time period, there was a big difference between the people that had and the people that had not. And Zwingli's parents were kind of well-to-do. And Zwingli had other siblings, but he appeared to be head and shoulders above the rest of them. He was a prodigy intellectually, and as we'll see as we get later on in life, he's really going to prove it. But he was a particularly gifted child. He had many signs of intellect early on. G.R. Potter said this in his overview of Zwingli. Jan Ulrich, the third of the family, turned out to be an unusually gifted boy, surpassing his numerous brothers and sisters who seem happily to have accepted the undoubted existence of his superior abilities. Now, as a sibling, who knows how true that is? But nonetheless, we see here is that Zwingli was an extremely gifted individual when it comes to intellect. He was born with this IQ and this ability for school. So at age 16, he uh, ended up going to the University of Vienna. Again, that was an extremely privileged, rare thing for people in that day. Yet given Zwingli's position, he was able to go. And then in the year 1504, just two, three years later, he finally graduated from the university in Basel. So he went to the University of Vienna where he graduated and then to further education at other places. So after his graduation from university, he was then ordained as a priest in the year 1506 in the city of Glarus, or Glarus, which is again in northern Switzerland. So if you have any idea of the map of Switzerland, it's a landlocked country. Germany, France, Italy, Austria. That's how it's surrounded. So again, he was in in the northern part of the Swiss mountains. So we're going to kind of see here where the providence of God, I always kind of say that kiddingly, but the providence of God, of course, is in every aspect of our life. But we're going to see how God is really working in the life of Zwingli as he is graduating and as he is now becoming a priest, it was in this town of Glarus that Zwingli received his initial opportunity to become a priest. And at this time, you were still in the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformation hadn't started yet from Luther and from Zwingli. So he was still a priest in 1506. So the same year he graduated. Now, the local priest of Glarus suddenly died, so they needed to have a fill-in. And what better choice than to have this 20-year-old, fresh out of college, became the local priest of that providence in Switzerland. So he spent about 10 years in this city of Glarus, again, which is in Switzerland. And from there, he developed a lot of his understanding and fundamental underpinnings and ideas that would later go on and, and shape his life. Let me just pause here real quick because there's another man that we want to introduce to the story, which I'm sure you guys are probably familiar with. But uh, during Zwingli's collegiate years, he developed a love for humanistic thought, and it had a great impact on his faith. 
Now, when we hear of humanism nowadays, we have that in the negative limelight, and we should be. Humanistic, or humanism's often atheistic. It's what can humans do to improve the lives of humans. But in uh, Zwingli's day, humanism was more of getting back to the basics, getting back to the text of scripture. And the architect of humanistic thought in that time period was Erasmus of Rotterdam. Now, if you recall who Erasmus is, Luther made really, I shouldn't say Erasmus famous because Erasmus was brilliant in his own right, but Luther and Erasmus had spats back and forth through letters about the freedom of the will. And Martin Luther's magnum opus, The Bondage of the Will, was a response to Erasmus of Rotterdam's theories on the freedom of the will. So that's who Erasmus is. And Erasmus, in his own right, translated much of the New Testament from Greek to the, uh, the language of uh, the Europeans. So he was brilliant in that respect, Erasmus was, but he wasn't as radical as Luther and Zwingli were. But nonetheless, Zwingli was greatly impacted by the thoughts of Erasmus, who was about 30 years his elder. And Piley and Macmillan, who I got a lot of information from, actually, the reason I kind of fascinated with Zwingli is that one of my classes last year, I had to write a paper on him. And uh, that's kind of where I, I got the intrigue. And uh, a lot of this source comes from that paper. But they write, Zwingli was influenced by Erasmus as a scholar whose humanist concerns led him to the New Testament and the Fathers. For Zwingli, Erasmus had freed the scriptures from scholasticism. And under his influence, Zwingli became a theologian, not in a scholastic sense, but in a humanist sense. And scholasticism was more of the tradition of the day for the Roman Catholics and the theologians. What scholasticism was is looking at the early church fathers, going back to Aristotle and the Greek thinkers, and seeing how the theories and the doctrines of the church would mesh together with Aristotle. And so you can very much see how the average layman in the pews, you know, us in here, as we're sitting there, someone's talking about Aristotle and the great philosophers and thinkers of old, how most of the time it went over their head. So Erasmus, this humanistic standpoint of looking at the scriptures, it was simply to get back to the basics. That's what you can think of as humanism in the time of Zwingli. So up to this point, we're up to about 1514 in the life of Zwingli. So from 1514 and then 1516, uh, Zwingli had an opportunity to meet face-to-face with Erasmus on multiple occasions. And again, this greatly influenced his life. And during this time period, Zwingli actually published a New Testament from the original Greek manuscripts that were different from what Erasmus had translated. And he brought this about, this completed work. And this had the effect of leading Zwingli to believe that the Bible should not be interpreted by the priest, the church, or the pope, but by the people themselves. That's not a drastic thought. We take it for granted that we can open up God's word here tonight and read God's word with our own eyes. But that wasn't the case in the time of Zwingli and Luther and Calvin necessarily, as we all know. I mean, who, uh, uh, who was, uh, Wycliffe was burned at the stake for translating the Bible from the, uh, from the Latin to the English. So Zwingli was dumbfounded. He was struck that the average person should be able to read God's word and shouldn't have, have it interpreted by some priest or the church. 
and he also believed that the people should have the word of God. He was convinced that hearing the gospel in its own language instead of Latin would change people's hearts and reform the church and society from the inside out. Again, a dumbfounding thought is hearing the gospel message in your own language and not some language you don't understand would have drastic changes for the society. So that's about 1514 to 1516 in Zwingli's life. You kind of see how he's being molded in this humanistic thought, getting back to the basics of the gospel message. Now, I just want to pause here real quick and kind of give a background of Switzerland at this time period, because that's very important for the eventual end, you should say, of Zwingli some years later. So again, in the time of Zwingli, Switzerland existed. You had Swiss people, but it didn't exist as we think of Switzerland now. Switzerland now is a unified country. Well, back in Zwingli's day... Uh, just about 30 years prior in the late 1400s, Switzerland finally got their independence from the Habsburg Empire. And what that meant is that it wasn't a complete state, but it was made up of 12 or 13 called cantons, or individual states. Now, kind of an equivalence is if you can think before the Constitution of the United States of America, we had the Articles of Confederation. And basically, each state was its own sovereign territory. It had its benefits, but it also had its drawbacks. And that's how Switzerland was at this time period, is that you had these 12 or 13 cantons, and they were basically independently ruled. And to throw a wrench in the works also, is that a lot of them, or all 13 of them, were either Protestant, Catholic, or a mix. So you can kind of see how it's a tinderbox waiting for a spark to ignite. And while Zwingli was uh, the priest of Galeris, he also had the opportunity to be a chaplain in the army. Now, <clears throat> with Switzerland, they had uh, what's called the, uh, they were Swiss mercenaries. That's really what Switzerland was known for in that time period, is they didn't really have any economic or farming. What they would do is how people would make money, how the men would make money, is they would hire themselves out as mercenaries. Interestingly enough, there's uh, still Swiss mercenaries that guard the Pope. The Swiss pikemen. They have 150 individuals, or individual men, hand-selected. They still guard the Pope. They're his bodyguard. And that started about the time of Zwingli. So that's what the Swiss are known for. They're known for mercenaries. Now, as Zwingli was able to be a chaplain in the army, he was able to see, really, the brutalities of war. And in one particular battle, in the year 1514, France and the Roman Catholic Church were battling each other. And both sides had rented out Swiss mercenaries. So what ended up happening is at this battle, Swiss were fighting Swiss. And it was a massacre. Some 12,000 Swiss soldiers ended up dying in the battle, fighting for opposing sides that they had no vested interest in. So Zwingli saw this, especially to see Swiss kill Swiss. So then, after this time period, he preached against it from the pulpit from his place of authority, he preached against the, the occupation, as it were, of mercenary. And in Glarus, that didn't make him very popular. So in the year 1516, he was finally kicked out, and he moved to this little town called Isendown. And I know I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, but close enough. But anyway, from 1516 to 1518 was, again, a transformal, transformal time period for the life of Zwingli. 
and it was a kind of a small, quiet town. So Stephen Lawson, also very beneficial in giving information, he said this, Eisendown was smaller than Glarus, so whose duties were lighter. That afforded him more time to study of Scripture and the church fathers. He read the works of Ambrose, Jerome, and other church fathers, as well as writings from Erasmus. Further, he copied by hand Erasmus' Greek New Testament as he distinguished himself as a proper preacher. He also, during this time period, began attacking some of the abuses of the church, specifically the sale of indulgences, and his preaching began to take on a stronger evangelical tone. So again, we see the providence of God working in Zwingli's life. He was taken from this popular place, Glarus, and kind of kicked out, went to this smaller town. But from there, the Lord really used it to germinate and form his core beliefs. I can kind of think of an example is uh, Jonathan Edwards, the greatest preacher America ever had. He was kicked out of his own church. He was sent packing. The church overwhelmingly voted to kick out Jonathan Edwards. And during that time period, after Edwards left the church, he went to minister as a missionary in western Massachusetts to some Indians. Now, at first glance, you kind of think to yourself, what's the purpose in that? Wouldn't he be better off at this congregation, this big congregation? But if you're familiar with the, the life of Edwards, during that time period with the, missionary, or with the mission with the uh, Indians, he wrote his magnum opus, his greatest book, The Freedom of the Will. So again, you see how God uses circumstances in our lives, things that were often are perplexing, where we appear it's a demotion, yet God is using those wonderful times in our lives really to form us and mold us and ultimately making us more like Christ. So again, come around to 1518, he finally leaves the, the town that I, I can't pronounce. So in 1518, he gets a promotion and uh, he's offered a job in Zurich. And Zurich is still a famous town in Switzerland. And that's really where he, sets, he plants his flag. That's where he's going to be for the next 13 years of his life. And it's Zurich that he's going to become the reformer. When he began his ministry in Zurich, he ceased preaching from the calendar of the church. Now, how it was is, generally speaking, the church would put out what the priests were going to preach and teach every single Sunday. Well, when Zwingli went to Zurich, he ceased doing that. And he did something that's quite amazing. At least in that time period to us, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But he began preaching through different books of the Bible. That wasn't known. That was not common in that day. You were given what the church wanted you to teach, and you would preach through it. So what Zwingli did is he threw that out, and he began with the book of Matthew. And over a six-year period, went through the book of Matthew, Sunday after Sunday. Now, six years is a long time period to be in Matthew. But nonetheless, someone with Zwingli's caliber, I'm sure it's not very difficult to do. So after that, he went to Acts, Timothy, the epistles of Peter, and of Hebrews. So again, you're seeing how he's slowly transitioning away from the dogmas of the Catholic Church. Let me go ahead and read this. All of these, and um, all of these ideas radically cast aside the traditions of the Roman uh, Catholicism and generated a sense of excitement and religious renewal, stirring the Reformation in Zurich. So Zwingli slowly making these changes really generated and turned, turned up, as it were, the soil in Zurich. And the Reformation juices were starting to get going there. 
And this is about the same time, this is about a year after Martin Luther in 1517 posted his 95 theses. And what's remarkable, again, if you take a step back, is that God was independently not using these men together, but in different places at different times independently to bring about change and reformation in the church. So it can't be said that Zwingli was contingent upon Luther. It wasn't. He was forming his ideas really before Luther began his reformation. And again, another really pivotal time period in the really theology of Zwingli is 1519. And in 1519, you had the... uh, a plague. I don't know if it was the Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague, or some sort of plague broke out in Zurich. And it killed 2,000 of the 7,000 inhabitants. So I don't know how big Bridgetown is, say, say Delhi's 20,000 people. That, that would be like eight to 9,000 people of Delhi dying. I mean, that's catastrophic. But what was remarkable, what Zwingli did, is he had the opportunity to flee. But he felt compelled as the priest of the city to stay along and help the dead and the dying people. And this heaped upon him immensely great popularity with the city. It really cemented his role as a priest of Zurich. But nonetheless, staying behind, he contracted um, the disease, the plague, and nearly died. But let me go ahead and read these words. He was really ailing and thought he was going to die. So he wrote these words. He said this, help Lord God, help me in this trouble. I think death is at the door. Stand before me, Christ, for you have overcome him. To you I cry, if it is your will, take out the dart that wounds me, nor lets me have an hour's rest or repose. Will you, however, that death take me in the midst of my days, so let it be. Do what you will. Nothing shall be too much for me. Your vessel I am to make or break all together. And again, this transitional time period in the life of Zwingli, he really appreciates and focuses here on after the providence and the sovereignty of God. And how I read it explained is Luther preached justification by faith alone. That was his foundation. But for Zwingli... Those were important dogmas, but his focus was upon the sovereignty and the providence of God working all things together for good. So let's skip ahead a couple years. In 1522, so we have Zingli breaking from the church in the matter of teaching, going after the indulgences, going after giving the people the common book of the common language. And in 1522, he does something even more drastic is that in 1522, Zwingli moved in with a widow and her three children. Now, it wasn't until 1524 where they got married, officially in public, but he said that they got married in secret in 1522, so as not to offend any of the population of Zurich. So, we'll take him for his word. So, in 1522, he did what a priest was not supposed to do. He married. So, that again is another reformational thing that Zwingli did really to break out of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. And in 1522, as Martin Luther, five years prior, had posted his 95 thesis on the door at Wittenberg, Zwingli wrote 67 theses. And this he sent on to the Roman Catholic uh, bishops and clergymen in the area. And really... They were points of contention and disagreements that he had 
with Rome. So let me just read a couple of these here. No biblical support for the office of the Pope. No biblical support for the Mass or Christ being present in the Eucharist. No biblical support for the intercession or veneration of saints. No biblical support for Lent, forbidding the eating of meat, or forbidding other foods. No biblical support for clerical celibacy. No biblical support for excommunication. No biblical support for purgatory. No biblical support for the priesthood. And again, these are just seven or eight of 67 of these theses that he went after the Roman Catholic Church for. And the Roman Catholic Church, having learned from their mistake with Luther, did not immediately try to destroy Zwingli. So they didn't try to hunt him down and execute him. But what they did is they ordered the Zurich City Council to excommunicate and throw out Zwingli from the town. But providentially enough, the city council was behind Zwingli. They believed in what he was preaching. So they didn't. They not only didn't throw him out, but they supported him. Now, what's striking also is like Luther, we have to remember, is that Zwingli didn't necessarily want to destroy the Roman Catholic Church. He didn't want to completely see it dismantled block by block down to its very foundation. But he wanted to see it reformed. That's what Erasmus generally wanted to do, is he wanted to see the Roman Catholic Church reformed. He wanted to see the reform start from within. But what do we know is obviously the Roman Catholic Church had no interest in that. Now, this is kind of, this time period of 1525 is kind of a a black mark on the time of Zwingli. And the reason I say that he only wanted to reform the church and not destroy it is because in Switzerland in that time period, there was, uh, in Germany and and other areas, uh, Denmark, or not not Denmark, excuse me, um, Holland, and other areas of Europe, you had the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists, generally speaking, really didn't get along with, uh, with anyone, per se. They had their difficulties with Luther, had their difficulties with Zwingli. But the Anabaptists uh, generally didn't believe in uh, paedobaptism or, or infant baptism. And that was one of their big contentions with Zwingli and other reformers. But they also, generally speaking, wanted to see the Roman Catholic Church done away with. They wanted to see Rome not have any more power. And that wasn't necessarily what Zwingli and other reformers wanted. So, in 1525, the Anabaptists, which were in great strength and great number in Zurich, marched through the streets of Zurich. And they were baptizing people uh, in submersion, adults. And there was actually a command in Zurich from the city council itself to have all the babies in the city baptized. And the Anabaptists uh, said, no, we're not going to do that. And it caused an uproar and a riot. But unfortunately, the Anabaptists rioted going through the streets, and the leaders were caught. And a lot of them were punished with capital punishment, and uh, they were drowned for punishment. Now, it's not exactly known as Zwingli had anything to do with it, but it's kind of hard to say that with his prominence and prestige, the power he probably wielded in the city, that if at very best, he was neutral on it. So that's kind of uh, a blight against Zwingli. But um, continuing on, 1525... Then we get really into the later half of the 1520s, and that's where 1 Corinthians chapter 11 comes into about the Lord's Supper. So again, you have, remind ourselves what time period we're in, we have Luther in Germany, and we have Zwingli in Switzerland. Now, there was a 
I guess, a compromise, or Luther and Zwingli agreed to meet called uh, at the um, Marbury of Colloquin. Mar no, Marburg Colloquy. I think I'm saying that, that last name correct. Colloquy, Marburg Colloquy. I think it was a palace. But anyway, Zwingli and Luther came together to see, basically, if they could join forces. And this is in the year 1529, so we fast forward about four years. So let me read this. This is, um, again, Stephen Lawson said, They agreed in principle to 14 of 15 items put before them. So 14 out of 15, that's great. It appears that there was unison. There was going to be uniformity, unanimity, uh, unanimity in the Reformation between the Lutherans and the Zwingliites. And it was an in infant baptism, the historical continuity of the church, and much more. But the only one that they did not agree upon could not have an agreement regarding the Lord's Supper. Zwingli and Luther battled back and forth. And I think it was more Luther that had the issue than it was Zwingli. And let me read this. Verse 24 is the contention of Zwingli and Luther. This was the split of the Reformation over these words. Verse 24, chapter 11, when Paul writes to the church of Corinth, And when he had given thanks, he broke in and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So on the one hand, you had Luther. They both rejected the transubstantiation of the Roman Catholic Church. They both believed that the body of Christ was not actually in the elements. The body or the bread and the wine did not actually turn in to the body of Christ. That was rejected. But Luther kept on pounding the table in verse 24, this is my body. And you have the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation, which Luther taught and his followers that the bread and the wine, Christ's body is present in, with, and under the elements. So it's not the body of Christ. You're not actually eating the body of Christ. It doesn't turn in to the blood and the body of Christ. But nonetheless, Christ is in, with, and under the elements. But on the other hand, Zwingli and his followers said, Do this in remembrance of me. So you have them shouting back and forth with one another. On the one hand, you have Luther saying it's Christ's body is in, with, and under. He is present at the communion table. But then Zwingli saying, no, it's not. It's a remembrance. We're supposed to remember. And that was a great contention between the two. And unfortunately, they did not resolve their differences. Luther later on said this to someone regarding Zwingli. Zwingli was a very good man, yet of a different spirit, and hence refused to accept his hand of fellowship offered to him with tears. And if you know anything of Martin Luther, if you've ever read The Bondage of the Will, you'll come to see that Luther had a tendency to be very vindictive. He often would carry vendettas against people. That was a blight against Luther. And perhaps he was going too far in this standpoint, but that's, that's for you all to decide. But unfortunately, the Reformation was split from that, that point on over, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. They agreed on 14 of the 15 points, but on one simple point they could not agree. Drawing heavily from Erasmus, 
Zwingli believed that the literal meaning of the Bible was dictated by historical context. Because Jesus was physically present at the institution of the supper, any corporal presence must be rejected. And because Jesus was presently seated at the right hand of the Father, physically present in the elements was precluded. Zwingli emphasized the natural reading of the text, given the immediate context. So again, Zwingli was saying, well, since Christ is present at the right hand of God in a bodily manner, in a bodily form as a human, how is it possible for him to be at the elements at the Lord's Supper? And that was a great contention between Luther and Zwingli. And Luther again says this, Luther would not budge. To colleagues, Luther commentated on Zwingli and his supporters, I suppose God has blinded them. So again, you, you see the, uh, the nature of Luther. He was very angry at uh, the rendering of the Lord's Supper. And let me just finish up here real quick. Then we come to the year 1531, and I think the, the song Onward Christian Soldier really fits well here with Zwingli. And again, keep in mind, Switzerland at this time period, it's a loose confederation really of independent states. So in 1529, you had the first Capal War. And what it was, is really it was Protestants versus Catholics. Zwingli kind of instigated it. He wanted Zurich to go and, and attack the other Catholic confederations. Um, but it actually came to a peace. There was actually no fighting after 16 days. Well, in 1531, the Catholic cantons kind of got smart. And they said, hey, you know, this town of Zurich and the other Protestants, eventually they're going to come out and attack us. So in 1531, in a preemptive strike... The Catholic cantons basically gathered their forces together and a surprise attack attacked uh, Zurich. And unfortunately, Zwingli and the forces of Zurich didn't have much time to prepare. So it was a battle of uh, 7,000 men against 2,000. And you can kind of understand what happens in such a lopsided victory. And uh, unfortunately for Zwingli, as he was killed in the battle. So he rode out with his men. He was the chaplain, I think... From historical records, he was also um, with body armor, with the sword on as well, fighting alongside of his men. And uh, rumor has it that he got hit in the head with a rock and then thrust through with a spear in his leg. And as he's sitting in a tree, wounded and dying, a Catholic soldier comes up and pierces him and kills him. So that was the end of Zwingli, unfortunately. You, you can say it was a good ending or a bad ending, depending on the way you look at it, but... It's unfortunate the way he died in 1531 because it appeared he had, he had so much more to give to the reformational cause. And uh, the Catholics, in a fitting manner, took his body, burned it, and then uh, destroyed the ashes because they weren't very happy with Ulrich Zwingli. So the uh, impending defeat really, uh, really hampered the Protestant Reformation in that portion of uh, northern Switzerland. Fortunately... Uh, Zwingli had a, uh, an apprentice, as it were, named Henry uh, Bullinger. He was a little bit more moderate than Zwingli was, and he continued on the Protestant Reformation in Switzerland. And then what do we know is in Switzerland and Geneva, we have Calvin's Geneva. And I heard it said, quoted, that Calvin stood on the shoulders of Zwingli. So Zwingli, again, built the framework, as it were, for the Protestant Reformation in Switzerland and for Calvin. And what's remarkable, let me just uh, conclude here real quick. What's remarkable about Zwingli is that he did not have a sudden change of heart. It appears that his beliefs were really from when, you could say he was born, but from college. 
And he seemed to be consistent over his whole life when it came to doctrine and theology. His beliefs led to the Swiss Reformation were in his mind and heart from the beginning. Zwingli also believed that the gospel could transform societies. He proved that the gospel could transform societies. It was never perfect. Zurich was never a paradise. It was never perfect. There were sinful men leading it. But nonetheless, you can see how Zwingli, preaching the gospel, was able to change his society. And just to conclude today, prominently displayed at the Water Church in Zurich is a statue of Zwingli. And I think this is fitting. He is standing with a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. The statue represents Zwingli and his towering influence over the Swiss Reformation, strong and resolute. Though his Zurich ministry was relatively short, he accomplished much. Through his heroic stand for the truth, Zwingli reformed the church in Zurich and led the way of other reformers to follow. Thank you. Let's close in prayer. Be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the men and women of old 